Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz, based on The Fly by George Langelan, screenplay by Charles Edward Poog and David Cronenberg, and directed by David Cronenberg. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to continue with our Cronenberg cast from 1986, uh, David Cronenberg's remake of the 50s sci-fi classic, The Fly. Uh, we just finished watching it. We have probably a ton to talk about not only anecdotal stories but the making of this film and then the actual film itself so yeah let's just jump right in some more of the old forester 1920 prohibition style yeah i'm not sure about this one yet matt no me either like this is a really intense bottle (laughs) yeah yeah i'll just be honest with you it's just it's a really it's a really harsh drink. And we diluted it last week with some ice cubes. We play around in trying to decipher what other notes are in there all the time. I don't pick up any. There's no vanilla. You said brown sugar last week. Maybe a hint of that there. Uh no, I think it's just I think it's just too hard on the proof side to really kind of taste it or smell. Do you smell anything? Okay, no. It just smells <laughs> Like alcohol to me. Yeah. I just feel like I'm drinking alcohol. Maybe that's what it tasted like back in the pre-prohibition yeah, might, style. Yeah, it might be. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get this started with our flight question. Pretty great score there by Howard Shore. We were discussing after we after we watched. Talk about him in a few minutes, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Why don't you hit us with the with the flight question this week? But both of these are courtesy of you. In honor in ugh, in honor of Jeff Goldblum, I thought we could take a look at performances of monster or creatures on film. So top three performances as a creature or a monster, and. I didn't allow you to go with any just voice, mm-hmm. and I said no demonic possession because we've just talked about that so much. So this is strictly in the monster in costume or creature in costume kind of space. It's a perfect question for this episode. I'm sure we're going to talk about Goldblum in the makeup and kind of how he becomes a fly, which is quite fascinating to right. me. Yeah, uh, I'll go first. Go. Number three, Lon Chaney Sr. in The Phantom of the Opera. Good choice. I mean... Lon Chaney had the nickname the man of a thousand faces for a reason. He could literally transform into anything and everything. And I can't remember what the name of the film is where he actually plays a double-legged amputee, but he actually built an apparatus where he walked on his knees wow. and like did the whole thing that way. I mean, he would just become, but I think nothing more iconic than The Phantom, like Universal's first true monster effort. It's legendary. His first unmasking and then his ultimate demise there by the river is, it's it's classic monster. Uh, so I would love to see like a movie biopic like about him. 
I think that would be really fascinating. Uh, I would be there on opening night, mm-hmm. and I will take your third selection here and keep it in the family. Yeah, with Long Cheney Jr. as the Wolfman. Good choice. There's a lot of stories about the time it took to get him ready in the chair. Mm-hmm. Surely it took hours upon hours. I think any of these people, like laborists, you know, you'd be patient. Right. But the movement inside is really important. Mm-hmm. I don't know how a man would move as a wolf prior to seeing the wolfman, but it has to look exactly like that. Mm-hmm. So that's my third choice. I almost kind of considered for this conversation uh, David Naughton in American Werewolf in London. but I'm w- shocked that you didn't go there. But when he is... I thought that was going to be your number one. When he is the werewolf, that is the Rick Baker creature design. So that's not like a performance, kind of like what we're talking about. So I think Lon Chaney exhibits the werewolf performance more than that film does. That's the standard, and that's such an early entry into the franchise Mm -hmm. of werewolves. But there's a reason why that's such an iconic role. I may revisit the same theory a little bit later on. He, like, walks on his tiptoes. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. A bipedal werewolf. Someday I really want to jump into that film. Maybe Mm. another Gosling film is coming, and that might be an entry. There's such an interesting discussion to be had about why Bela Lugosi's werewolf is on all fours. And Lon Chaney Jr.'s werewolf is bipedal. So, oh, yeah. Be- I was like, I was like, yeah, Bella Lugosi the gypsy. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. It's interesting. Because that's who uh, wolfs him, I guess yeah, you would say. Yeah, wolfs him. You vamps him, wolfs him. Yeah, you're right. All right, number two for you. It wasn't Claude Rains? <laughs> <laughs> number two for me, um, yeah, I kind of went with a little bit more of a modern choice, but kind of just looking at the full performance, both in voice and body movement, I think is the big one. I have to go Andy Serkis as Gollum slash Smeagol in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think he created a new way of digital performance on screen that he would go on to do arguably even better with as Caesar in those new apes films. But to take someone's body language and then digitally create that, I mean, that's still a performance. And what he does with that character is pretty remarkable, both in voice and in, in the way he moves. Uh, yeah, there's some there's something to that the motion capture performance. I like that you went out of the monster mode and did a bit more creature there too. Mm-hmm. The technology and all of the interesting pieces <clears throat> that went around that gave it the look, but there's still the core tenant of how do you move as this character? Great choice. I think it's important too because when you kind of break down, especially that second film, how important that character is to the story. I mean, that was an element that absolutely needed to work on screen, and I, I think they act, they they nailed it. Um, that that's just a, probably a technology that's going to get even better as you know computers get more advanced. I would argue that that's exactly correct. Number one, two for me. Oh, Number two. two sorry, me. sorry, Matt. It's okay. Going to go to the film legend. Ooh. And I'm going to go with Tim Curry as the Lord of Darkness. Oh, good. Strong and seductive and uh, immense and terrifying and hooven. That's a great depiction of a satanic-like Those character. Those horns are so gigantic. So red. And, you know, you give Tim Curry the opportunity to be mm-hmm. that gregarious, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And you know he's going to kill it. Good so choice. That's my second I one. I actually watched Legend like uh, maybe three or four months ago. Did you really? It's kind of a garbage movie. Yeah. He's not, though. Like, he's really good as like this antagonist in there. When he emerges 
out of the darkness around the corner and it's hoof by hoof. And, oh man, that's such a great unveiling for the audience. And mm-hmm. he just looks great, doesn't he? Doesn't he just look terrifying? Absolutely. And he's got the, like, the booming voice too. Sure does. Good choice. Yeah, thanks. Let's see if we have the same number one, Matt. Uh, I'm Okay, so before we do this, okay. I just want to say, okay, I tried hard <laughs> not to go with this one, but there's a reason that sometimes right is just so right, and we can try and be cute, and I bet we probably do. Let's say it on three. One, two, three. Boris Karloff. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say Frankenstein. Okay. But I meant the monster. Yeah. Look, man, I went back and forth because I, I said to myself, I know we're both going to do this one. There's a reason that's so iconic. Mm-hmm. And we can be cute and try to be smarter or just recognize what is. No. And this is what is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um from the great Jack Pierce makeup design, which is synonymous with Frankenstein now. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't look like that in like the book when you read it. He's more man-like. But when, you th- when I say Frankenstein, you think flat top and bolts. You know what I mean? Yep. So and green, but, even though it's black and white, why is he green? Absolutely. But the, but the performance, it's Karloff's body language and his movement. I mean, Karloff became so big after that film. I mean, they could literally just put his last name above the title mm-hmm. and that was enough to sell the movie. Uh, uh, I was actually, actually, wait, we, we kind of have the same entry. I was actually going to pick more Karloff from Bride of Frankenstein when he actually, you know, mm-hmm. meets with the blind man. He actually finds his voice. I mean, that's a whole different element to that. Uh, character mm-hmm. um, how can you not go with him <laughs> I think in a perfect monster world for me I get the Jack Pierce design of the monster from the first film coupled with the bride design in the second film there's a slight difference mm-hmm. in the Jack Pierce design from original and sequence following later with what you're talking mm-hmm. about for lack of better terminology, I just think the second iteration of the monster is softer. It's not as angular and sharp. Yeah. Do you buy that? Well, he got burned in the in the windmill. So I think that gives plausible reason for the change. And as great as the bride looks, and I gave her some consideration too. Mm-hmm. It's the most horrifying marriage that's ever happened in cinema. And they are so hideous together, it's beautiful. Yeah. And that creature is a masterpiece. Well, I like how he's introduced, too. He walks into the room backwards and then slowly turns around, and then we do a a medium shot, a close-up, and then an extreme close-up, and then we kind of get the monster. Like, I love his reveal. Universal had that on lockdown right away, didn't they? Mm-hmm. They understood that concept of it so much. This is going to be the star of our film, and we want to show them in a great and grand fashion, you just said it, that here's the backside of the monster and then revealed, boom, turned around. It is like picking up the curtain for the beginning of act two in the film, Mm -hmm. but a stage play-wise. Absolutely. Superb. And that Jack Pierce design is so great. Like I love that picture of him in the, the barber chair with Jack Pierce just working on him. Karloff just... It's so great. Mm-hmm. We'll put it on the Instagram this week. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, good good choices. Uh, yeah, I, I also gave some slight consideration to Tom Woodruff Jr. in the pumpkin head costume. Um, but it's not as, as iconic as kind of the ones we talked about. I mean, the, the ones that we brought up for today's conversation are some truly great performances within monster makeup, which has to be 
incredibly frustrating and limiting to what you're able to do. I mean, just watching Goldblum in this film, and we'll get into it, he's got at least like 20 pounds of like makeup on him, like caving your face and your eyes are kind of like drooping down. But like, how are you able to, you have to act through all of that to make us, you know, believe and buy into the character. I mean, there's an art to that. I mean, that's not everyone signs up for that. Mark Wahlberg doesn't sign up for a movie like The Fly. <laughs> Good point. Can I have one honorable mention? Absolutely. And the reason why I didn't choose this is it's not actually character, it's actor. Okay. It's anything that Ray Park has done from Darth Maul to mm-hmm. Toad to, I believe, Snake Eyes and G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. He's really good. Those costumes are really good. So I think he's good at that. But I wouldn't say, and Darth Maul looks great, but that character just kind of is wasted. It's right? not his fault. Right, not his <laughs> fault. George Lucas fault. So that's my honorable mention is any of those three choices from Toad to Darth Maul to Snake Eyes. Well, let's raise one up to just great monsters on screen. I like that. Some more oh, old Forester here. Mm-hmm. I hate having to grind through a bottle like we're sort of doing right now. I bet, I bet if I like go like lit a match and just like breathe, I bet fire would come out. Do you <laughs> like it better this week without the ice and the water, the water down effect? I don't know. I think it's a little harsher. <laughs> no, yeah. the, the water held just a, a tad. But let us know your favorite monsters on Facebook or Instagram or at RiceSmileProductions at Gmail dot com. But Matt, it's time to go back to Canada <laughs> and let's go meet Mister Brundlefly and get to our review breakdown of the fly. What am I working on? Uh, I'm working on something that'll change the world and human life as we know it. Change it a lot or just a bit? You'll have to be more specific. What do you want me to be specific here in this room with uh, half the scientific community of North America eavesdropping? Is there another way? Uh, You could come back to my lab. Listen, I'll make a cappuccino. I have a fiame of my very own. You know what that is? It's not the Dilaton's plastic kitchen model. It's one of those uh, uh, real restaurant espresso machines with an eagle on top. Somehow I get the feeling you don't get out much. You can tell that? Yeah. So the fly starts out, and actually I've been dying to talk uh, with you about this because of how kind of expertly paced this screenplay is. Within the opening lines of the movie, we get in... And I want to go back and talk about the titles, too, so don't let me forget. Uh, we get in late with these two characters, Seth and Veronica, by, played by Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Couple at the time, they were already dating. In fact, he kind of helped get her the role, yeah. much to the chagrin of uh, David Cronenberg, but I think it worked out uh, in the end. It did. We get into this conversation late, and through just oh, like a minute of dialogue, I think we get everything. Seth's an inventor. They're at this kind of science conference. She's a reporter looking for a big story, and he pitches her, hey, I'm working on something big. I'll co- you come back and see it. It's kind of a bit of a wooing effect in place already. And then by page 10, minute 10, we see the teleportation like in full effect. So there's your inciting incident. This is the world we're going to be around in. And we don't dick around with scientific mumbo jumbo, like with bar talk industries. It's more about sets flat. And we spend about 80% of the film there. I think it's a great opening sequence for a heady, what can be a heady science fiction monster movie. It sure is. And to take what you said and expedite the process to move through story, what I really found interesting this time was how the screenwriters wrote Seth's knowledge of the teleportation pods, essentially to get out of the hard science of 
that teleportation stuff. It just said, look, I basically contracted the pieces out in this model that I have, and I don't really know what they built me. All I know is, and they I don't need- know, and they don't know what they're building for me. Right. Mm-hmm. I just teach the computer how to interpret what I want done, and it uses my voice. And by doing that, mm-hmm. you speed up the process and avert that whole ten minutes that would be such a burden sure. on anyone by kind of creating novice ingenue for the hard science, mm-hmm. but extremely well-versed in the entrepreneurial elements of science. And that's such a smart approach to take screenplay-wise. And I think we, 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 we uh, in the middle of both of those sequences, there's a car ride to get to his place. And then we learned the motivation behind yep. what he got into in the first place. And this was something I had totally forgotten about, which uh-huh. is he suffers from motion sickness. I mean, he can't ride in a, in a but he threw up on his tricycle when he was a kid. So he's very probably has vertigo probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so through his own scientific intellect and his brain, his pursuit in the field of science was to find a way to bridge travel for himself. It's egotistical. You said the word ego many times while we were watching. Uh, but I think that's uh, admirable. I mean, it, it comes from a selfish place. But now if he's able to fix this, Seth can travel overseas he can you know essentially go anywhere and anyone can not just him seth brundle's ledger of character traits is balanced between incredible burgeoning ego with irrefutable charm and they do it through this goofy boy next door nature and they've created a strong character that instantly is likable. Mm-hmm. Anyone that will admit to the woman he's trying to seduce, whether it be through science or cappuccino, that upon first date he puked on his own tricycle because it was going too fast or something. Yeah. There's a sympathetic element already there, yes? Mm-hmm. And the other part to what you said earlier, you can also recognize the chemistry between Goldblum and Davis because they're not really having to act with the love pieces in this because, mm-hmm. in fact, they're a couple. I want to bring up one other sort of issue with casting real quick on this. Yeah. As the movie unfolds, there is a significant portion of their relationship that's based on intimacy or sex. Mm -hmm. I think the movie is heavy sexualized through ports. Do you believe that in Cronenberg's recesses of Cronenberg's hopes? Yeah. There's a Marilyn Chambers element working here again. Like maybe he wants someone that's that comfortable in that space. Maybe. Because essentially there's a part, we'll get to it later, where Seth basically kicks Veronica to the curb Mm because she's not able to keep up with his sexual appetite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Calls her a drag. (laughs) After four hours, he's still ready to go and she's exhausted. So we'll get onto that later. Yeah. But that plays a big role in this, right? Creating this Uberman of this, and (laughs) to the Jeff Goldblum mythos who's quite the lothario if you do any research and reading up on him (laughs) that's an interesting casting decision with this couple but despite all the stuff that i just said into what you said earlier they're likable it's fast Mm -hmm. and we are into what we want to see which is that universal piece that you spoke about earlier yeah get to the fly because that's what i'm really here to see get to the teleportation yeah but i want to talk about those opening credits real quick because i've always really liked them um it's almost they almost look like you know gene cells, you know, yeah. moving. But what it really is is it's uh, this party, this Bartok science soiree. But it changes from red and blue to green and purple, and you're kind of like as a viewer, just like what the heck is this? What am I watching? 
you think it's science as you're looking under a microscope, but then when it pulls back, you know, you're really looking at something else. I just thought, always thought that was such an ingenious way to do an opening title credits. I mean, credits can be uh, laborious sometimes, and, and unless you find like a, a unique way to, to go about them. And I think that's a great way to start with a, with a booming score by, by Howard Shore. I mean, it's, I'm already like on board just like from, from, from the word go. This kaleidoscope of DNA that's interesting colored with a terrific score is, again, a smart way to quickly and entertainingly move through the necessary pieces of film, which are the credits, mm-hmm. which are usually boring unless you're in a James Bond film. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe Vertigo. Uh, yeah, I agree. To take it to the color of red and blue to green and purple those shouldn't be that color. Those don't even really go together. Mm-hmm. You're setting up something pretty remarkable, which is how uncomfortable this film's going to make you because we're going to bastardize what should be with a- what is. Absolutely. And like we just set up, you know, we, we want to get to, let's get to the teleportation stuff. Yeah. I don't think I get it. What happened? You get it all right. You just can't handle it. Um, your stocking has just been teleported from one pod to another, uh, disintegrated there and reintegrated there, sort of. It'll change the world as we know it, right? I think in terms of uh, a science, I mean, we talked about Back to the Future, DeLorean, like a, a time machine, like this is like the biggest creation of all time. That trumps literally anything. Yep. This would as well, I mean, you have something that you can step into and then within 30 seconds literally be in this film. It's like 10 feet apart in practice. And in theory, that could be clear across the world. That's that's fascinating. Like like I, you, you see the ambition and what's been created here. And you, because they set up Brundle is so sympathetic, you kind of want him to succeed. You want him to find the crux, which we're going to find out is he can only transport these inanimate objects, which is all kind of taken too from the, like the original source material of the fly and in, in the original 58 Vincent price fly. That'd be an interesting movie to talk about one day in a, in and of itself, you know, they're transporting plates and then eventually the house cat. And then where the film differs. And I think much to this film's benefit over that film uh, is the way they treat the mutation of the fly aspect. In that one, they just give him like a little fly head and a little fly hand, and then the human head goes on the fly. <laughs> it's kind of silly. And in this one, it's a it's a gradual uh, degrading process of the human body, very disease-like. And that's that's all Cronenberg. You know what I mean? Like yes. we're playing in his in his playground right now, which is okay. We like we're playing with science. And we're playing with the body and what's going to happen when we try to alter what the body's supposed to do, you know, talking about God and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think the film handles it really well. I mean, when you talked about Goldblum, I think Goldblum prior to this, I associate Goldblum with playing one of the rapists in death wish, <laughs> the opening scene of death wish and the guy looking for his mantra in Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. This was kind of like one of his, like probably his first, like true starring role. We we joked about Transylvania. First girls are easy. Sixty five, oh, and that one too, yeah. and uh, uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Oh god, I didn't even know he was in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he plays the cowboy in that one. You're this right. is like his first kind of starring vehicle, and like that was like kind of a hard sell for Twentieth Century Fox for him. But he's 
say what you will about him, like in his roles and kind of becoming almost a parody of like what he's really good at, whether that be Jurassic Park and Independence Day. I mean, here, this is like his first chance to really do that. And I can't think of a better role for him to play in that sandbox. Completely agree. I also like that they're going back to school on a simple concept that has been around all of these monster movies, whether it's the Invisible Man or the Werewolf or Dracula. The star of the film is Mm -hmm. the creature, the fly. The change that Brundle goes through is what we want to see. And for the accolades that I will give on the first Wolfman, Mm -hmm. the big moment in that film is the first reveal of the Wolfman. Same thing with Dracula to extend, and certainly with Frankenstein, even though it's not Frankenstein, it's the monster. If the title of the film is The Fly, that's who we showed up to see. Cronenberg does a really good job of... In a script that is very efficient, and I want to back this point up in one second when I finish this one. In a mm-hmm. script that is very efficient, as you said earlier with the writing, he's able to prolong the mutation of Brundle in stages that are equally interesting and more horrifying than its predecessor. The hairs on the back are pretty gross, and then we get to the terrible, terrible uh, complexion, mm-hmm. and then we get to the gelatinous pussy fluid that's right. And it just keeps getting Mm -hmm. more horrifying and more horrifying as he becomes closer to fry closer to fly. Mm -hmm. Now back to that a bit with the efficiency. When he's teaching Veronica, Gina Davis about how the teleportation device is doing, he's doing that, but he's doing it by proxy for us. So we understand what's at stake here. Yeah. And this is what's really smart. Mm Mm-hmm. There are any number of objects that are inanimate that he can use to teleport from pod A to pod, pod B. Her handbag, a plate, a fork, what any number of things. Mm-hmm. What does he choose? They're stocking. <laughs> so we are taking, right, we're taking that piece of their relationship and dialing it up. And you're understanding that the fact that she's willing to pick her leg up, take her shoe off, hand him her stocking, and then he recognizes everything that that means. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yep. In her thigh, all that business. Not only are we seeing how the pods work, but in that same instance, brilliantly written, we're also taking the relationship between those two and hitting it into overdrive and moving it in a subtextual way very smartly for the audience. So I want to raise this because we don't do this enough, and this is a space you and I both love. That is terrific writing, and terrific is such an understatement. That is someone who is in complete control of pacing and understands exactly what they're trying to do on the page. You're going to let me tell this story. This is, you're going to love this. So kind of how they kind of came to even getting Cronenberg and getting like his version of the screenplay. So the original screenwriter, uh, Pogue, you know, they had had talks at Fox of wanting to remake the fly and they liked the pitch and how how they were going to do it. So he went and did his draft and then Fox was so unimpressed. They just killed the project off of one draft. Mm. So then they said, okay, we'll make it, but you have to set up financing with a different company, and if you find that, we'll make your film. So the producer, Stuart Cornfield, went to Mel Brooks, of all people. So Brooks Films is his production company. And he was on board, he liked it, and they did want Cronenberg, but guess what movie Cronenberg was in pre-production on trying to get off the ground? Total Recall. Holy smokes. So that whole saga you told weeks ago on the best movies never made of the road to get to Total Recall. 
he was involved in that. I mean, he was wow. like trying to get that. So he's like, I can't do it. I'm doing, I'm trying to do this total recall movie. Maybe if it was a different time. So they're like, they talked to other people. It didn't work out. Um, they talked to another director. He had to bail because of a family tragedy. It was like kind of crazy. And then, so total recall broke down. Cronenberg was available. He was game. And, uh, I, th- I find this, you know, entirely fascinating for both, uh, David Cronenberg and Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks, and talking about good faith. And, you know, we talk about ego a lot on this one, what Seth's, you know, turns into. Here you have it in Hollywood is all about ego, oh, yeah. honestly. Mm-hmm. Mel Brooks had the foresight to remove his name from the producer line because he didn't want people to think this was a comedy, like one of the Mel Brooks comedies he made. So in anywhere in the credits, in anywhere of the promotional material, you will not find his name other than Brooks Films as his company. So he did that so the film would do better. That's so smart. Yeah. Think about that. If Mel Brooks's name is on this, everyone's going to go, oh, look, he's spoofing an old B-movie science fiction horror one, the original fly, the same way he did Young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Wow, great. I didn't know that. That's a great story. Good for Mel Brooks. Removing your ego from the project. Yes. I mean, why would you not want to have your name? I mean, your name above a title is pretty great. Especially in Hollywood. Especially in Hollywood. You want your name on as much as you can get it on. But then Cronenberg did the same thing too. I mean, he rewrote most of the dialogue and the characters in this and then added his sex and body horror element. But like the whole kind of gist of the story kind of came from Pogue. And so when it came time to turn into the Writers Guild, he says his name needs to be on this thing too because my version can't exist without his. So when literally probably 80% of this screenplay is Cronenberg. So in good faith, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. That's a great story. So ego not at play in the production of this film. I mean, everyone's really trying to give their all to get this thing done. Good for David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. What a tremendous amount of respect I have for that guy. Yeah. Especially when we talked about the issues that he faced with the Canadian government financing his film last week in Rabid. To take the lessons that might be in overseeing heavy-handed bureaucrat and back it off and share the good. Great for him and Mel Brooks. Mm -hmm. Those are two very solid decisions. And I would caution if either one of them made the other one, like didn't go the path that they did. Yeah. Maybe this isn't this film. Sure. Maybe this is direct to video. Maybe this hits the walls of, uh, you know, the top shelf and the horror section and the, in blockbuster. (laughs) That's a great story. I like that both those men were solid enough to recognize the project versus themselves. Yeah, you don't get that a lot. At all anymore. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely not. It's all about ego and where your name is in the credits. Uh, I'm going to play one more sound clip, and then uh, I got a couple questions to ask you. But then, you know, we're trying to solve this mystery of, you know, what's the missing element? You know, we can transform inanimate objects, but we can't, you know, reproduce human tissue. Okay. Now try this teleported half. Oh, are you serious? A monkey just came apart in there. Baboon. Heat. Oh. Mm. That tastes funny. Funny how? It tastes, um, synthetic. Mm-hmm. So what have we proved? The computer is giving us its interpretation of a stake. It's uh, translating it for us. It's rethinking it rather than reproducing it. And uh, something is getting lost in the translation. Me. I'm lost. 
the flesh. So computers are only as smart as you allow them to be. This reminds me of the scene in The Thing when Wilford Brimley's like, that's not tissue, it's imitation. <laughs> uh, it's the same thing. I mean, we saw a failed experiment with one of the baboons that goes horrifically awry when it, it essentially turns it inside out. Mm-hmm. And it kind of did the same thing to the steak. I kind of feel like it turned the steak inside out, so of course it's going to taste synthetic and absolutely disgusting. Right. So to have the foresight to be able to take that knowledge and, you know, put plug that into the computer to not imitate or replicate, but reproduce exactly, he's going to find the, the formula to, to make this whole thing work. But on top of that, I think we have a pretty decent antagonist. I don't want to call the fly an antagonist just yet, be, or Goldblum an antagonist just yet, but it's John Getz's Stathis Borns. I mean, what a name who's running this publication, this science publication. And Gina Davis, I mean, you, you don't shit where you eat, mm-hmm. had a relationship with her boss. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like kind of coming between this particular project when you kind of see his jealousy in full effect. It's nice to see John Getz again. And I mm-hmm. told a joke off mic. His acting chops have improved tremendously since Blood Simple. I didn't know he was in this film. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I've seen this and yeah. seen Blood Simple a lot. Yeah. But, you know, I often ask myself, whatever happened to John Getz? And I got my answer today. He actually showed up and did a pretty good job in this. And he's going to take on a pretty big role. He's not just a supporting character. He, like you said, is presented as the antagonist, but is going to take on a protagonist-like role. Sure. While Goldblum's going to do just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they switch about halfway through. And I love that the linchpin in between the two of them is Veronica Gina Davis, and they both have pursued her at some level. Yeah. So now we're getting into alpha male and a lot of very interesting space that that entails with the pursuit of said object of affection. Mm-hmm. And you, in a weird way, are taking this science fiction horror film and building a really weird love triangle and turning this by the time it's done into might I venture drama? Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Maybe romance in a science fiction film. Mm-hmm. That's Solaris. Maybe I'm not sure where else I've seen that. It's not easy to do. I'll tell you that. No. I, yeah. So uh, good for John Getz. Welcome back to my film knowledge. It's good to see you again, my friend. Well, and I, th- I think when he shows up in these initial scenes, he's a, Instantly hateable. I mean, just from like the way he dresses to that his beard. Yeah, he's jealous and petty and showering in her house with the key that she lent him some years ago. She calls him a petty schmuck. Yeah, that's that's right. And basically says, I don't want a relationship with you. Can we just like for health purposes, go have sex? He's kind of a sleaze bucket. And essentially staked out Brundle's apartment all night, I imagine. Stalker. (laughs) For her to come out. Yeah. That's her saving grace at the end of the day. Yeah. We'll see if we can get there. Let's tell some stories, Matt, because, you know, The Fly isn't just any regular old episode on Rye Smile films. I think we have a really interesting in into this particular film that I don't think we realized until we said, hey, let's do The Fly. Yeah. You want to go first or you want me to? You go first uh, and kind of just explain the context. So my first viewing of The Fly was I hopped on a bus with my buddy and we went to the mall and saw it on a Tuesday afternoon. Eight, 1986. Yeah. So... I think I liked it. I think I was a little bit grossed out by it. And it certainly left an impression. And I never forgot Jeff Goldblum after that. Mm-hmm. The next viewing of The Fly, and up until today, the only other viewing of The Fly I've had was actually at the LA Opera. This is a true story, everybody. 
David Cronenberg and Howard Shore that scored this film decided that the fly was suitable material to make <laughs> an opera out of. It's almost borderline hilarious. It kind of, there's no way, right? Yeah. I mean, U2 is going to do Spider-Man. I guess anything's possible. But um, at that time in my life, I had a small writing gig for a woman that had a crazy concept, which I'm not really even going to get into. Um, it's so not high concept. Anyway. Yeah. And in the courting process, writer, producer that she and I were in, she was at the time working for the LA Opera. So I go out and I take this gig and I'm working on the script. And she's like, I have a surprise for you tonight. Um, I said, okay, what's that? And she's like, we're going to the opera. This was the second time she'd taken me. So I'd been out there to see La Boheme. But mm. I end up going to the opening night at the LA Opera of The Fly. And among all of the other crazy events that happened that night, none other than the row in front of me, one seat to the right, is sitting in all of her six foot six glory, Gina Davis. Mm -hmm. David Cronenberg is there. Howard Shore is leading the orchestra that night. So I'm there opening night. It is so cool. That's awesome. And I'm stunned that Gina Davis is as far away from me as you are right now, Mm -hmm. which is across the table, mic to mic. Yeah. And the biggest thing that anyone in the opera wanted to talk about was the Brundle emergence from pod A to pod B and the full frontal nudity that occurred because I, I, I'm not a opera historian, yeah. but if I remember right, it was the first time there had been full frontal male nudity in an opera. Good for that actor. I uh, mean, <laughs> fully committed. <laughs> yeah. Daniel something. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was a little cold that night for Daniel. <laughs> Poor Daniel. Yeah, poor, I guess. But you showed me some footage of the actual... It looks pretty cool. <laughs> Look, man, La Boheme is top of the charts when it comes to opera. And if I had my choice between which of those two to see again, yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, They did a great job making the fly. Mm-hmm. The Veronica character was gorgeous. The music was terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, star-studded <clears throat> event. And that was a great experience. I have not seen the fly since that night. I remember, yeah, I don't know when, when that came up for us to really talk about that, but it was really early on when we started writing and you brought that up and I was just like blown away by, I was like fly opera, Gina Davis, 2011, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so 10 years ago, a decade ago, long time ago. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) That script, by the way, if anyone wants to know is still sitting there languishing on my computer. (laughs) Great story. Like of all the things, the fly, you know what I mean? Uh, interesting, isn't it? Like it, to just conceptually put that on an opera, not just like a play or a musical for that matter. Mm-hmm. Operatic singing. I mean, you showed me the clip in the, the arm wrestling scene and they're, they're singing during the thing, but like full like Pavarotti, like Pagliacci, like pipes. The special effects on that were tremendous too. So when you get David Cronenberg, you're not going to cut any corners on the way that it looks. Mm-hmm. On film, it's easy to make an insect out of a man. Yeah. It's hard in stage play. Oh, damn. He looks good. And if anybody wants to see, uh, maybe we can put it up this week too sure, on yeah. the Instagram as I'll give you that footage. Mm-hmm. He looks killer. And just the trailer that you can find on YouTube will give you a pretty good indication of what the entire performance was like. And man, they hit it out of the park. I don't, I don't even care what the reviews were because I'm sure that I could see that industry being so snobby. Like, well, it's the fly, you know, I could see Gross that out opera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
I was really, really entertained. I'm jealous that you did get to see that because... Do you like opera? I like the scope of opera. Okay. I think it's very impressive. And to sing in the registers that they sing is remarkable. Uh, the opera plays that they choose is, is another story. Yeah. But yeah, sign me up for the fly. I want to see the thing opera now. <laughs> yeah. So to this day, those are the only, and those are two big ones that I've only ever seen at the LA opera, which I'm not even sure where it's at now with everything. But mm-hmm. I, I know that the gal I was working with told me some years later that they were having some issues with funding and all of those issues. That, I'm not, that I'm is, not sure. that is a niche performing art too. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah, it's like, Theater's one thing, and then Broadway and musicals, and then opera's kind of like below that. That's not to knock opera, but like that's a hard sell for just like the general public. What was so weird that night was that's a that's kind of a snooty crowd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the couple that we ended up hanging out with that night were the couple that wrote Deep Blue Sea, also. Oh my God. So after, so it was Kate and I and this other couple. And so we finished the performance. She had tickets for four, so we all went. And so I'm sitting down at a restaurant post-performance with the couple that wrote Deep Blue Sea. It's a husband and wife team. Yeah. And we talked about that. Of course, we talked about the Sam Jackson rally speech where the shark eats him. And I asked them, I said, and what next? And they basically kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, sort of, that was it. And of all of the things that were to be talked about, the thing that kept coming up that night at dinner was how impressed they are that that guy got up there full frontal. <laughs> That stole all of the conversation that evening. Uh, <laughs> that 2010 to 2013 period in my life yeah. is a trip, man. Yeah. Um, I have, There's so many other stories with that, but the end result on that was it made some good relationships, had some nice friends, saw a really remarkable performance that I loved for all of the not snooty nature of my horror pieces that is not opera appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And somehow that all got lost in the wash of what was his dick. <laughs> I don't say, you know, his, his Johnson. Well, we're weird about male nudity, like on film, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't see it a lot. Did I, did I never tell you the part that we had dinner with the, the deep No, blue? that's, that's a, that's <laughs> a cherry on top. Crazy story. Yeah. I would have been mad because I, I that movie's kind of schlocky, but it's kind of great. Like it's oh, yeah. it's fun schlock, yeah. and I love fun schlock. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's great! Uh, I'm gonna tell my story. My lips are a little tingly from this. <laughs> oh, but the fly has a special place in my heart too because this was always a film talked about in my household, and it's a household of three: mm-hmm. my mom, dad, and myself. <laughs> yeah, and this was the film. You know, the, 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 their first date I always remember was Cinco de Mayo. Mm. I think, I think 1986. Hell yeah. Uh, so they're every first date, they always go back, uh, you know, they re- relive the same first date on Cinco de Mayo, which is pretty cool. But then somewhere down the line, I think this is a June or a July release, mm-hmm. uh, they had it in their interest to say, hey, let's go watch The Fly. Like, wow. this is like date like two or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of, I tried to pace it out when we were watching. I was like, it's fairly normal and, you know, it's sexy and it's science fiction-y. And then it, you hit a crux in this film. And I think I know where it is. I think it's the arm wrestling scene. Oof. And you, the film takes a turn after that. Yeah. And this was a hard sell for my dad, who then spent the rest of the film viewing, I think, by himself in the lobby because it was just too disgusting. Hmm. And it, when you kind of get into this film, you don't blame him. I mean, 
There's some really like the vomit, the the. What's well, a good departure? Because if the arm breaking here <clears throat> is too much, it's he does need to go have some popcorn in the lobby. The fly goo on his yeah. little uh, plaid shirt. So I think my mom <laughs> finished watching it, and he just kind of hung out in the lobby and kind of did his own thing. Good for your mom. <laughs> Stay the course, damn it. So the fly was always like weirdly talked about in the household. Like like I knew about this date, but I knew it was like it had like a, a taboo to it. It was kind of a gross film. And then, like, one night, I, I this fourth or fifth grade, so I'm, like, eight or nine, nine or ten. You know, you get up in the middle of the night, and you're, like, I don't know, I'm parched, I'm thirsty, too much MSG for dinner. Uh, and you go drink the, the, the three o'clock in the morning water is disgusting. Like, nothing tastes good at three in the morning, like, if you get up at that, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I get up, and, like, my mom's, like, in the living room. She's watching TV, and she can't sleep, so for whatever reason... And I can't sleep because I'm thirsty and whatnot. So she's just flipping through channels. And, you know, I pop on the couch, too. And TNT, Monster Vision, Joe Bob Briggs, like, it's like 3 a.m., the fly's on. And I'm like, and, and she's like, he's like, do you want to sit and watch? I was like, yeah, sure, I'll watch. And, like, I don't know if they edited the movies that early on TNT. Oh, so wow. I, th- I think you kind of got the full show. Nice. So, so there we are at three in the morning. We watch the entire, I, it's like a Thursday. Like I have school the next day Oh man! and we burned through the whole thing. And I think my dad came in and like to hear what all the ruckus was like the TV on in the middle of the night. And he's like, Oh, the fly. And he just like went right back to bed. But we watched the whole thing. Like time did you guys finish? It was like 2 AM. It was like five 30. Cause with like commercials and whatnot. So it was like already time to get up. Yeah. I loved it. Like I just thought it was so weird and gross and like, I finally got the full effect. I got to tie that date story to this film. And then it wasn't until like years later when I, you know, got into buying movies and like collecting where I was like, I need to buy the fly because like this, this is something. And that's when I really tried, I really found like the nuances with the film, Goldblum's performance, you know, what Cronenberg was really good at the special effects, you know, at that, that's the time I find the thing. And I'm like, I was like, then the eighties, man, they like, they did it good. I mean, like it sucks today. Mm-hmm. You point and click on a, on a thing and it's hard to replicate, you know, just the goo. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just yes. so visceral and tangible and has volume yeah. because it actually is a, a tangible item mm-hmm. with, with weight and mass. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, props to props to my mom for for sticking out the initial viewing and then watching with me all those years later. But like the fly's always been kind of a real interesting film in my filmography of just how I came to it. I mean, that's it's a weird way to come to a movie. I love about film mm-hmm. or to larger context story mm-hmm. is the anecdotal occurrence that ends up being the bookmarks and the chapters of our lives with that, mm-hmm. whether it's having dinner with the deep blue sea couple and hanging out with Gina Davis at the viewing of the fly as an opera or a moment to celebrate with your mom that neither two of you will ever forget. That was just you two. Yeah. It just happens so offhandedly and with such strange selections, Mm -hmm. the fly. Yeah. When was the last time, honestly, anybody thought more than a second about the fly. Yeah. And here we go. Yeah, That's what I love about it. To that, to just this strange occurrence that happens around story and film. That's why we love it, right? So many ways you can come into it. We should make a podcast about that. And talk about it for, oh, 47 minutes at this point? Done. Excellent. Well, let's get back. Well done, man. Yeah, thank you too. I love, yeah, so we knew we had like story time for this one. But let's get back into the actual story of The Fly. 
And through just a jealous rage, I mean, this is why you don't drink and try and do things. A podcast? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. But he gets jealous over this weird love triangle between Stathis, uh, uh, Ver- Victoria, Veronica, and, and Seth. And he just talking to the baboon. When they set up the fly perfectly, when it's like buzzing around this jungle animal <laughs> yeah. around them. So we set up that element. He's like, screw it. You're fine. I'm going to go through. So this is where like kind of like this, it's almost like a, I don't want to say Shakespearean tragedy, but the movie is kind of tragic in the, in the way it ends. I honestly feel that Seth had figured it out and had the fly not got in there with him, he would have been fine. Sure. I think he like the baboon came back just, just perfectly normal. It's that one little minuscule 0.073 kilogram weight that's in there with him that alters him. And I love the way he emerges because he's just like already beefy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a lean, like he's not like Schwarzenegger coming Beef. out. Of it. It's like a, it's like a lean, yeah, very lift, a lean cut. Yeah, yeah. And then we see that in full effect. He's doing aerobics on like chairs, and he's doing like a gymnastics high bar, and uh, yeah. And so we're kind of seeing. Well, this thing's giving him some like kind of super strength and reflexes. And then in a scene that could honestly be just, I'm going to call it the most Goldblumy Goldblum scene that's ever been done. You know, the Jurassic Park life finds a way moment comes close. Mm-hmm. But this is where I, you kind of notice something's uh, drastically wrong. Well, I asked the computer if it had improved me, and it said it didn't know what I was talking about. And that's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why. And I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart out and by out and put back together again. Why, it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years that I've been obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? You know, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But... Of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen, and not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individual. But it is, uh, uh, nevertheless, also certainly true, I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation... Molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a a cannoli after all. Waiter, I mean, what an accomplishment. But what have I really done, though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go. Move. Catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. First of all, kudos to Jeff Goldblum to not stumble over your words in a monologue of that sort. I mean, he's so good at, like spewing out that scientific mumbo-jumbo and ethereal talks about the world and existence and this and that. But while he's doing it, he's pouring this sugar into his coffee like 20 spoonfuls. Mm -hmm. So visually, it's a warning sign. But then I also think the way he's talking is also a warning sign. I mean, this is a guy that is like super hyper right now. And kind of the way he's just so focused. I think this is where that ego is coming into play that you mentioned where he's really seeing the benefits of what he's done, that now he wants to trap Veronica into that too. There's a technique in writing, which is creating character through dialogue, but not in what character dialogue is as exposition, but in the frequency or lack thereof of the way that it's delivered. 
in that scene, he's pinging. Bing, 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 bing. And it's erratic and fast, much like the way a fly moves. Mm-hmm. So if there was a strange corollary between a dialogue that a fly would have with anyone who wanted to listen, it would be this. To add to it, the spoonful after spoonful after spoonful after spoonful of sugar that he puts in the coffee. And that's like the only thing she's concerned about. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because it's very odd. Yeah. And then the latent holier-than-thou Uberman context that he's presenting this from Mm -hmm. back to what we said from i don't know minute six in the podcast whenever we got into it yeah this is so smartly scripted Mm -hmm. movies what 94 minutes long yeah not not a long movie look at that yeah because they're able to put two or three things in each scene where they matter if michelle pfeiffer Mm -hmm. in the fabulous baker boys Sang Fever. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, and I don't know if she sings that song, but there is a song where she's mm-hmm. on the piano seductively singing. Yeah, That's another visual example with the opposite. Mm-hmm. That has to do with costuming, which in that scene is similar to the sugar and the coffee, mm-hmm. but the pace is slow and seductive, and you get the element of seduction and objectivity of sex that she is embodying or empowering her skill set with. It's really hard to do, but when the writer nails it, you speed Mm -hmm. the story along in an efficient and smart way that is such a benefit to the audience. But it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah. And then just through the pacing of that screenplay, we're able to now, every time we see Seth in action, we're going to see him rapidly deteriorate. And the next scene, uh, you know, apparently uh, flies have like just an insane libido mm-hmm. because he's unable to, he's just able to go for like four straight hours. Yeah, He's just like, Gina Davis just can't take it anymore. Right. And so to the point where he's like, well, I need to find my equal now. See, this is where we kind of get into like a weird Frankenstein thing mm-hmm. uh, with this film and, and she says, I'm afraid. I don't want to go into that weird thing. Like something weird happened to you because you get these hairs growing from your wound now. Um, and he just says, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to go find someone else. He's like, you're a fucking drag. <laughs> this is what he calls her. Talking about the plasma and the flesh pool, which I think is just very interesting and like enough to dive into in and of itself. The way he says you're a fucking drag, is yeah. that stunning to you? Did that kind of? Absolutely. Me yeah. too. Yeah. That character wouldn't say that in that film. Mm-hmm. Again, two, the expertise of understanding the character through dialogue and writing them. That Jeff Good that Seth Brundlefly, that Jeff Goldblum character, wouldn't say that unless something is amiss in him. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is dorky guy that puked on his tricycle because it went too fast. Yeah, he's becoming erratic, a little un- unhinged, unstable, and we see that in the following scene when he's trying to pick up uh, anybody. But yet it adheres to his dorky nature or his scientific nature because if you're going to go with fucking mm-hmm. and drag, yeah. that's such a a milk toasty yeah. slight. Yeah. You drag. Yeah. It's out of time. It's really not such a terrible thing to be called. Mm-hmm. You know, like lousy jerk. <laughs> sure. Ooh, yeah. watch out. Mm-hmm. Man, to the screenwriters, I'm, I'm going to do it again. Good job, guys. Well done. To both of them. Yeah. And that, that might be Cronenberg because he did the dialogue. Yeah. So then we end up in this bar. He's looking for another woman, but he's like, I'm going to test, you know, my abilities. Like, I'm stronger. I'm more, got better reflexes. And you get to this arm wrestling scene, which has always just been, this might be my oh my God moment. I'll just let the kid out of the bag. But it's 
shot and cut together so well because it's reaction shot of all the patrons in the bar, close-ups on the two of them, their hands, and then his hand clap clamps on his and like the fly goo like sweating down. And then he just snaps this guy's wrist. Oh my goodness. Like I can't imagine the pain of that. And then just gets up and leaves. I'm taking the woman. I've demonstrated my male dominance in this scene. And this guy's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like just like left like so defeated in more than one way. And then we see, and I've always really liked this scene too, when, you know, they get to his pad and he's like, I'm tired. I can't do anything. And he picks her up and it like literally like almost flies up these stairs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just so proficient, but he's appearance wise, the body, I mean, this is Cronenberg and this is body whore. He's falling apart at the seams and mm-hmm. we see it and it's in the complexion right now. Yuck. And I looked over at you again in this scene. So once he kicks the the conquest of the night to the curb and then Veronica don't come back here the deal's off and whatnot he goes into the bathroom and it's just one miasma after and talk about like we're probably about halfway through the movie at this point uh we've built up enough to get to this moment and now we're gonna like fully display it in all its disgusting glory it's a fingernail here and a pus on the the mirror here uh and then when he finds out the truth, what do you think of the reveal? I mean, as the audience, this is almost a Hitchcock-like aspect to the film where the audience is aware of the fly. We're just waiting for him to come to it. I kind of like the way it's done in the science and the display when he says two elements in the teleportation pod. And he's like, what the hell's the other element then? And then when he weighs it down, I love the weight is kind of where my eyes went because there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's like point zero 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 seven three kilograms. I mean, it's nothing. Nothing. And so what is that? And he goes at the the molecular level, and it's this fly. Ugh. And then much like, you know, I knew we were going to talk about The Thing a lot because The Thing, a remake of The Thing Howard from Hawks. Another World yeah. from the 50s, it's the same era as the original fly. They found such unique ends into the remake that justify a remake. Mm-hmm. It's not a remake for remake's sake. They found a unique way to retell the story. And I think in this way, we're not dealing, I'm going to give you a fly head in this little fly hand and put the flies, uh, the human head on the fly. Gene spliced, their cells merged. So now over time, you're going to slowly start to become more fly than human. I think that's entirely fascinating. When you use the computer to explain the science to the people that are watching it, you also speed the process along. And there's a very sick fascination watching the probing or analyzing of his own body as it begins to betray him in real time. I, I don't know what part you looked over at me at, but when he squeezes his finger and yeah, that, it was, it was that one. Yeah. disgusting. Yeah. That's a pretty visceral reaction to have to someone or to have from someone as they're watching what you know is inevitable because the title of the film tells you it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Didn't sneak up on me and it's not the first viewing either, right? Yeah. Watching him look at the body, which five minutes before script-wise was his crowning achievement of power and um, energy and strength and libido and amorous adventures betray him right before his very eyes is such an interesting tragedy, and for lack of a better term, I don't mean this, but comedy that's playing inside of him. So then the discovery of what happened and to come down to 
the most insignificant yet completely disgusting elements in all of our lives, the housefly, and there's no going back. That part when he realizes that the other participant in the pod transportation is housefly, oh my God. And he's praying, right, that it's just been absorbed into him because his body could probably absorb it and then defeat it in some uh, autoimmune response. There's that line at the bottom that says uh, the cell is at the molecular genetic Uh, level, so it's like... He's being remade into what that was on some level. And then they fade to black. (laughs) And then we come back like months, like a month later, and he's drastically in much worse shape. What happened? I was not pure. The teleporter insists on your purity. I was not pure. I don't know what you mean. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Uh, The computer got confused. There weren't supposed to be two separate genetic patterns, and it decided to... uh, Places together. It made it as me and the fly. We hadn't even been properly introduced. My teleporter turned her into a gene splicer. And a very good one. Now I'm not Seth Brundle anymore. I'm the offspring of Brundle and Housefly. Cronenberg said when he made this film that, you know, he wanted to show Seth's transformation as kind of a metaphor for just the aging process. Do you, do you kind of see that in the way it, it, I don't want to say our ears and our like penises fall off, but like we lose our eyesight, we lose our hearing, you know, teeth eventually, you know, we go through body decay as we get older. It's a natural, it's how life works. Mm-hmm. You kind of see that too in what happens to Seth Brundle. I mean, he literally starts to lose parts of his body and becomes uh, a wrinkly husk of his old self. (laughs) It's hard to watch. Nobody's going to die as a fly, but it does address a fundamental component of all horror, and that's death, right? That's what we're playing with. Now he's going to go through a process of dying and then rebirth as hideous. And that plays along a little bit with the afterlife and what's coming with reincarnation or what people believe in that. We're, it's pretty heady stuff, and well, that's why it's scary and hard to watch. Well, we're talking about death and aging, but we're also talking about birth and life. And if the film didn't have enough in it already, mm-hmm. there's this like third crux thrown into the mix, which is Veronica's kind of got Stathis on board, and she's gone to film his horrendous eating ritual which is he can't break down food because he doesn't have teeth anymore Mm -hmm. so he's got he calls it vomit drop (laughs) or he pukes on his food so that corrosive (laughs) enzyme allows him to just slurp it up it's disgusting (laughs) it's crazy about that though Mm. we don't puke on our food before we eat it no but amylase is an enzyme that's in your saliva that is the human version of that it begins to break down as you start chewing by the time it gets to your stomach the amylase has already begun to break down the food you're consuming Mm mm-hmm so as far as that is not how you and I operate, it's not that far. Yeah. There is a piece of that that is reality. Piece in play, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the visual is just too much. It's just it's just so gruesome. So Stathis sees this video evidence, but that almost gets thrown out the window because then Veronica's just like, I'm pregnant. And then like literally everyone in the audience is like, shit. <laughs> like, 
when did you conceive? Did this happen pre or post fly op? Or like, when did this happen? But I think we all assume the worst in that, like, whatever's in you right now is a cellular level sperma, spermazoa of brundlefly. So Sharknado is preposterous. Mm-hmm. And you know that. The fly into its own acknowledgement might start to play in that space. Like, yeah, humans can't become fly, but what they're doing or they, what David Cronenberg is doing is whether it's the vomit drop or the death and decay and rebirth or pregnancy, somehow he's managing to find a piece in a wild concept that could never happen to a human and make it relatable. And that, my friend, is the art when it comes to horrifying. And I don't mean by terror, but I mean like, oh my gosh, that's hard to watch. Well, he also in, knows in in horror films. And Cronenberg has it on lockdown. Well, he also knows how to reel in and bring like we talked about last week with um with Rabbit, just Santa mm-hmm. getting blown away. Yep. And it's kind of slightly comedic. Now, what's about to kind of take place is like, oh, you got this thing in you, like Stathis is gonna set up this abortion and we're gonna come, we're gonna get the baby out of there and like whatever it is. And Cronenberg, I think, knows how to toy that line of grotesque, horror, and dark comedy Mm -hmm. because what takes place next is this. There's more in there. There's more? And it's him. I mean, a lot more. He's the gynecologist. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to help us. Come on. You can push. You can push it up. You can push it up. Come on. Push. That's it. Come on. Push. That's it. Give us a push. You can push it up. Come on. That's it. Come on. No, wait, wait. No. You can do it. Oh, wait. Oh. So in this, and I love that it's a dream. You know what I mean? It's just like we're able to kind of like go there, but like not go there because that's almost too ridiculous. But what they end up pulling out is this like fly larva, this human baby sized fly larva. And it's, it's, it's shocking. It's horrific. And then I want it slightly comedic because it is visually kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then we reel it back in. It's this dream and it's this potential nightmare scenario of what could be. And that is horrifying. Uh, so we reel it back to the horror side. That's that's not easy to do in both script, execution, and, and directing. To Cronenberg's credit, I mean, he's like in full control of like how he wants people to feel this movie. He wants them to be grotesque, but he also wants them to have a tongue-in-cheek at the same time, too. As far out of the realm of possibility as that might be, in the context of the film that he's set up, is it really though? I know she's having a dream, but yeah. if she's impregnated by the man, we don't post fly assimilation. It could be anything. Yeah, it's got the DNA of that in there. Mm-hmm. She is going to. I think that's reasonable. I don't know if it would come out as a larva. Yeah, probably not. Mm-hmm. But what's coming out is going to have some of the latent traits the DNA, if you will, mm-hmm. of an insect. And that's growing inside her. And then the other part of that is, okay, so I'm going to birth God only knows what Rosemary's baby into this into the world. What's the effect that's going to have on my body? Because it's been in there for nine months or however long it takes a larva mm-hmm. baby to gestate. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> that's scary. It is. I'm, I'm not someone who's ever given birth, nor will I ever. Yeah, just that. But the- that's terrifying. Yeah. 
again, the body whore. I mean, Cronenberg's in the space that he's really good at. So he's making us afraid of both bringing life into the world and then the end of life. You know what's scary about body horror? Let's do this real quick. Mm-hmm. I've used this example before, so I'll use it again. Mm-hmm. If you and I are sitting in here right now and I hear, get out, and blood starts trickling down, podcast is over. Yeah. I'm out. It's real simple. Mm-hmm. And we have hopefully averted that crisis. If and when your body betrays you, which in fact happens, that's called the body decay or dying that we all go through, and you can't fight it and you can't see it and it's happening at some cellular level or even smaller. <sighs> I think that's more terrifying. That's this unseen that has no defense against because by the time it's realized and actualized, it's too damn late. Mm-hmm. If the voice in your wall says, get out, it's not too late because I can just, I'm getting my keys and like, I'll see you around. Maybe not here though. Yeah. And we're good. The other, the other way, <clears throat> that's why I think that this this genre that David Cronenberg chose to endeavor yeah. never became what demonic possession or ghost or anything else rose to a level of acceptable in American society from filmgoers. Because I think at its core level, it hits too close to home. And that's crazy because you and I will never become a fly. But per the theory, we're already well on that road, Jesse. Well, when you look at his filmography, I think he found a unique way into in with all of his films, whether that was Creepy Children in The Brood or Last Week with Rabbit. Oh, God, I haven't thought about that. You're right, The Brood, yeah. Yeah, Videodrome and, or Telekinesis in The Dead Zone. Like he found, or yeah, and telepathy in scanners. Mm-hmm. He found so many different ways to play in this sandbox. And mm-hmm. no film that I mentioned is the same. They're all different, but the body's consistent in how it reacts and how it is received. And there, there's a mastery to that. I mean, like when I say body horror, he's the he's the 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 captain of this ship, uh, and any other people are obviously feeding off of like the legacy he's created with all of these. We haven't even mentioned twins in dead ringers or fuck crash and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> wanting to have sex with a open wound. <laughs> like, I know like he found so many different ways into this particular subject. And I'm kind of, you know, that's kind of another reason why I don't like history of violence for the personal reasons that we'll get into at a, in a future episode, mm-hmm. but he got away from that. You know what I mean? His films got a little more, artsy and cerebral, but not in the body horror. It was more of like, they were different stories. And and the thing was, he wasn't writing them. He didn't write History of Violence. He didn't write uh, Eastern Promises and Cosmop, like a lot of these films he's done since then. So he found a way out of it, but I think not not for the better. I don't want to change at all what you said, but I want to say this real quick and then come back to it. Mm -hmm. In that period that I talked about from 11 to 13 in my life, I have another entering story about Crash that I'm going to tell someday too on this. Okay. But not today. That movie's nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is that because the studio sat him down and said, look, we understand what you're about and you do it really well, but we'd really like to fund you for something going forward that has a little bit more marketability. We have this really, really great graphic novel. Want to take a crack at it? Absolutely. 
And, and maybe there's a part of him too that maybe wanted to do something different. And I can't blame the man for wanting to try that. I mean, there's if, no question that's his most critically acclaimed film, History of Violence. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I both agree that that film sucks. It's terrible. Yeah. So I don't want to say sell out because no, that's no, no, not no. fair. That's not that you, he's, he didn't. That movie is delivered in a Cronenberg-like way on a stupid story. And at a point where they probably could say directed by Cronenberg, I think people maybe knew his name at that point too. So it's an interesting arc because the space that he was really good in is not one that was Hollywood friendly. Absolutely not. And that means box office dollars. And it's tough to go forward knowing that your film has a very limited potential for making money. Absolutely. So let's get to the finale of this film. So Seth Brundle, Jeff Goldblum has become full fly at this point, almost, almost. Mm-hmm. And and just in his the nuances of his performance, watch his eye movement, his head twitches, twitchy. Yeah. When you say, "Hey, what does a human fly look like?" He that, de- he becomes it. Sure. I want to ask you something, and I don't know if it's outlandish because I fully feel like maybe he should have had some love thrown his way at least. Do you think he should have been nominated for an Oscar at least, at least a nomination? For best actor? How could you not? If a human is going to act like a fly, or if you're going, like if you're playing charades and someone gives you the card that's fly, it's that twitchy and fast movement and herky-jerky. And then take that and add to it the grotesque nature of the costuming and the vomiting. That would make me sick as an actor vomiting whatever the hell that milky crap is on object after object. Mm Mm-hmm. How can you not, Jesse? I know. And it's probably because, the, like you said, you know, we're dealing with a genre that's not friendly in Hollywood. It's looked down upon almost. What's really strange about that is, I didn't know this, but this movie won Academy Award for Best Makeup. Mm-hmm. With actors and actresses, Hollywood really does celebrate or appreciate the body dysmorphia that they go through. See uh, Tom Hanks in uh, Castaway. Mm-hmm. Or Tom Hanks at Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Those are just the top of my head, but there's plenty of the other ones. Yeah, Robert De Niro and uh, Raging Bull. Right. Yeah. Go down the line. If you do crazy things to your body, Hollywood generally appreciates that. It acknowledges you gave up your body for this. Didn't Jeff Goldblum do that? Why not? Yeah. I know it's makeup, but it's the giving up of the way normal humans move to become a fly. 1987 Oscars could have been wild because Sigourney Weaver uh, as Ripley and Aliens did get nominated for Best Actress, which is shocking because sci-fi action, is that's not Academy-friendly. No. So to even get a nomination is amazing for her. Mm-hmm. But to have that and then to get Goldblum nominated the same year could have been like just like great for the genre fans, you know what I mean? Like throwing some love the way of people, I think, acting better than what's actually getting nominated. I'd love to see what else. I don't know off the top of my head what else was I'm nominated look it up and who won. I'm going to look it up after this. Because I, it'll be self-serving because that's how we are. Snobby. Yeah. How did this person get nominated? For, oh, my God. That, like, we'll immediately go there. But the truth is that he wasn't even acknowledged is a shame. <laughs> that's so understated. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a shame. And Jeff Goldblum's really good at being a fly. Who the hell ever thought what a fly would look like? And it is perfect. Because Vincent Price in 1957 just had a strange little hand and a funny head and basically walked around and said nothing. You know how hard that is to do as an actor? It's not. You could do it right now. And I love Vincent Price too, so I'm not hammering Vincent Price. 
So, uh, oh, you got it. Okay. No, no, I don't. Oh. No, no, I don't got it. But, uh, if you didn't, if you needed any more evidence as to like to throw some more love his way, this man, this is probably honestly my favorite scene of the entire movie. Now we're in like Beauty and the Beast territory. I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying... I'll hurt you this day. I once was a, I had a dream that I was an insect who thought he was a man, mm. but now the dream's over and the insect is awake. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's uh, that's pretty heavy. And to, to have the foresight, though, the human in him is enough to say, if you stay around here, I will hurt you. You have to leave right now. It's absolutely tragic. And you see it in Gina Davis's performance. And she's good in this, too. I mean, she's just absolutely devastated at the crux she's in right now bearing his child but i can't even be around the guy uh around this time brilliant absolutely that's it's amazing back to that playing between hero and villain if she aborts the child then his pure version of dna is gone and we see through the computer what his goal is and maybe i can slow this process long enough to find myself in all of this dna mess that i'm in well her with another version of his non-corrupted DNA, essentially, or a smaller level corrupted DNA with the child, presents maybe an out. So that makes sense, too. Mm-hmm. So we're playing with rot drama now as a man who is scientifically and science fictionally changing to a fly before our eyes. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say? That's really smart. Yeah. And again, back to the point we made a little while ago entirely relatable Mm -hmm. what is your offspring going to look like that is the progeny that's made up of you and someone else and what is that going to mean and what does that do going forward do you want to go over the best picture nominee or best actor nominees yeah we looked we we, we looked it up here so the winner that year was paul newman for the color of money which that almost seems like lifetime achievement you've been so good we got to finally give it to you right agreed dexter gordon for round midnight i never even heard of that movie Me either Bob Hoskins and Mona Lisa. Okay, I, I've seen that. William Hurt, Children of Lesser God. I can't stand William Puke. Hurt. Uh, James Woods and speaking Salvatore. Of, <laughs> speaking of um, uh, history of violence. Yeah, exactly. And then speaking of Videodrome, James right. Woods and Salvador. Never, I don't even know that film either. Do you know that film? Any of these films. The one we're talking about long after the conversation is a film that has a cult following like The Fly. Who talks about these other movies? I brought up The Hustler a lot on this podcast, and I love fat, Fast Eddie Felsen, mm-hmm. but not the secondhand reheated version that they get with Tom Cruise and Color of Money that really is more supporting than best. Yeah, you're that, not he ta- wa- that he wasn't nominated? Dude, you and I have seen a lot of film. I've never even heard 
of round midnight. We could knock out two of those guys and put a put a Goldblum in there. And he does like I said, he doesn't have to win. What the hell was Mona Lisa? Bob Hoskins? Wasn't he in Roger Rabbit? Yeah, and did it matter after that? Yeah, so that's a, that's a that's like a British crime movie. That movie's actually pretty good. You would actually like it. Okay. But uh the other three, get out of here. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, I told you it would be self-serving, and it is, but I think there's pretty strong support here. Well, when you show the Academy that's made up of mostly, like, 80-year-old, like, men who are just, like, used to, like, old classic Hollywood, Mm -hmm. if you screen this movie for them, yeah, they're getting grossed out. They're probably not even finishing it. Right. They're not even getting to the clip I just played you. It's your dad to the 10th power. Literally. And that's your voting base. No shot, Jeff. No shot. Sorry. To you, buddy. We recognize it. Yeah, we'll give you. I'd give you the Oscar. That's right. Well, Again, against those five, mm-hmm. yes. And then look at Sigourney Weaver's lineup. I'm probably giving it to her, too. <laughs> Jane Fonda in The Morning After, Hard Pass, Sissy Spacek in Crimes of the Heart, Puke. Kathleen Turner and Peggy Sue Got Married, Double Puke. Uh, and then Marley Matlin, One for Children of a Lesser God. Okay, there's an argument to be made there. But which movie are we still talking about? Yep. You're 30 years later. Yeah, maybe you and I should vote. Maybe we should be on the voting committee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All righty. So let's get to the finale sequence. So Brundlefly goes and abducts Gina Davis from the abortion clinic, takes her back to the loft. And then Stathis, man, he like tries again, assuming like a hero protector role for uh, Veronica gets dealt a terrible hand because he's ambushed by Brundlefly. Mm-hmm. And we see the vomit drop and it's not food and inducing state on his hand and then his foot and it is so this is probably the most disgusting part for me that just melts away yeah like it's just a corrosive acid that just dissolves him yeah and so now he's like almost, Raiders of the Lost Ark oh the good 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 he's almost like a stump on the ground there and <laughs> yeah. so yeah. now Brundlefly has this great project lined up to I'm gonna put Gina Davis in one I'm going in the other we're gonna splice together the three of us, you, me, and the baby. That's going to be a just disaster. And whatever comes out on film three or, or pod three is going to be grotesque to the nth degree. But, we'll, but it might be better than what he's in the state he's in right now. But we'll be together. So he, he's lost. lost. This is like a Dr. Jekyll thing now. Like he's like so far mad in his pursuits. Lost in what though? Family, he, yeah. right? Again, back to that, let's relate it to something in this outlandish concept we all know about. Yeah. Lost in the idea of family. Absolutely. Man, to that, he's really good at this. So what do you think? So the, now we get the final uh, version of Brundlefly, which is the Chris Wallace like full display, which looks like how you would imagine a human fly to look like. It's got these like under mandibles and these big bug eyes. And that's the final form. And man, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we're gonna go there, but like I've always been really stricken by this ending. And you know, Stathis does the right thing, and he's able to kind of break the line that connects the pods. Mm-hmm. So Brundlefly is actually only gonna fuse with him in the pod himself. So when he comes out, he's like got like pipes and stuff stuck to him. And I don't, it's for a sci-fi horror, 1986, and this movie is so disgusting in every possible way. When he grabs the butt of the gun and pulls it up to his head, I I don't want to say I want to shed a tear, but like like it's like almost like Jesus, like it's mm-hmm. very tragic. And we've gotten to this part where the only solution is death. What I look like, how I feel, you just got to put me out of my misery. And she can't do it. And and Howard's scores like music at this point is just on another level. Okay, so to finish off the point that I've brought up now, maybe the tenth time, mm-hmm. euthanize me, please. 
And we've all had that discussion with ourselves. If I ever get to this state, you have to promise that you will do this for me. Pull the plug. Pull the plug. Mm -hmm. Pull the plug, Jesse. And we can't do it and she can't do it. But eventually she does. Again, though, here's this mutated fly pod thing that is in a weirder mutated version than human fly was somehow remarkably to David Cronenberg's credit. Mm -hmm. Euthanize me. The fact that this fly pod apparatus still has enough rational thought to finally finish this nightmare that's been my life for the past four months Mm -hmm. gets back to the core of the man and the soul and despite all of the things that the fly is, it's what Gina Davis as Veronica was hoping she could still get out of him the beauty and the beast element that you brought up. Mm -hmm. There's a good thing in there. Yeah. This is the last remnant of the humanity that's in Brundlefly. (laughs) And I know it looks, it looks goofy because it's like this mandible grabbing the butt of the gun and pulling up to his head. But there's like a part of me that just like is kind of crushed when he does that. It's sad. This tragic journey is come to an end. And for as much as we hated Stathis earlier Mm -hmm. and we're, pulling against him and pulling for Seth Brundle. Yeah. The reversal that's happened to where the guy that we hated, we're now praying has championed our cause is either a testament to how much we like Gina Davis as Veronica and what a good job that is, or what a great job. And maybe both Cronenberg has done with playing fast and loose with our emotional or moral compass when it comes to the evaluation of the people we've watched. That's uh, right now in this space. Sitting here, I can't think of another film that does that. Maybe Silence of the Lambs a little bit with Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And then the movie ends. So we don't even get the answers on, did she go through with the abortion? Did she give birth to that? Thing? Like, what is that? The movie just decides uh, we're done. Do you think they had a plan for maybe a two with what came next? Well, there is. There is a fly two and Chris, the, the special effects guy, Chris Wayless made it. And have you ever seen it? No. Has Eric Stoltz and Daphne Zuniga in it, oh, yeah. and it's in uh, John Getz actually. Oh, I actually have seen that film. No, yeah. I have seen that film. So we get the answers that we want, and I, I don't oh think God, it's, yes. I don't think it's the answers I wanted. No, I, I like the ambiguity here, uh, and kind of left open for interpretation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's kind of the end of the film. Uh, I have a couple little anecdotes before I have some questions for you. One of the curses of horror, right? Find a way to make it franchisable at some level. Absolutely. Yeah, and then like. You're going to keep Cronenberg around for three of these films? You know what I mean? Like, Do you know who did number two? Chris, Chris Wayless, oh, Wayless, special effects that. guy. Sorry, yeah, you're right. Okay. $9 million budget, $60 million gross, so it was a hit when it came out. We mentioned the Academy Award for Chris Wayless for best makeup, deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Filming in Toronto, so this is a Canadian film. It's Cronenberg's uh, uh, backyard. Did the Canadian government finance this one as well? They did not. It was Mel Brooks's money this time. I'm just kidding. I know. Uh, there was an there's an inf- infamous monkey cat splicing sequence. So he takes the baboon because we never see the baboon again, and he splices it with this cat that he finds uh, to kind of do another experiment. And he's like in full Brundlefly at this point, mm. but then like it comes out and it's an arbitration. So he beats it to death with a pipe. And when they screened that, they said if you keep that in the movie we'll lose this, uh, the sympathy for the Brundlefly. I mean, we want to keep sympathy. And if you be whatever a cat looks like or any animal, mm-hmm. we won't be on your side anymore. So they rightfully had to cut that. I think that's a good cut. You can, you can still see this online and special effects wise, it looks amazing, but like 
yeah, there's a point of no return for the Brundle character. That's the well, especially because that um, chimpanzee mm-hmm. baboon baboon has served as his sidekick and loyal as such. They hug all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a a good decision that they made there. I don't think people realize, you know, like when a movie reaches like first cut, they screen it for mm-hmm. studio execs and a general public, and then they give notes. Yep what they liked, what they didn't like. So then they go back to the editing. They say what to take out, pull out, make it leaner, make it more tight. And sometimes for the better. I mean, one of the infamous ones we talked about was the screen for Goodfellas and everyone was just like appalled by like the film they saw and they stuck to their guns on that one in in that regard. But sometimes good cuts come out of uh, screenings like that. Rennie Harlan. Okay. Speaking Mm. of Gina, speaking of Gina Davis. Wow. Was going to make a sequel uh, called Flies, which reminds me of Aliens. I mean, we're taking the plural form of the singular fly now. Whatever that film was going to be. I'm- Gee, I wonder how many she births. A larva, uh, a brood. I don't even know what the film looks like, but mm-hmm. I'm mildly intrigued because that's kind of a good title. You know what I mean? Yes. To go from the fly to flies. Yes. Uh, and then this is a film that's been talked about getting remade again many, many different times. Todd Lincoln was attached to one in 2016. I don't even know who that is. And then David Cronenberg was actually in the talks to do, I don't want to call it a sequel. I'm coming up with a new term here on Rice Smile Films, a sidequel. Hmm. So a spiritual sequel. So it wouldn't be like taking place from the Brundle, but it would be a new iteration, but not a remake, uh, so to speak. So that kind of died out. I mean, it lost kind of its momentum and Cronenberg hasn't really made a movie in about six or seven years. I was just going to ask you what's project wise in the future for him. Cause I know you usually do the research on that. I, Where's think, he at? I think the rumor is he is going to team up with Vigo Mortensen again, but the crux is he is going to do something with him in the body horror genre. Okay. So that might come out in the next couple of years. So we'll have to keep our eye out for that one. Hmm. But and you're setting up the nightcap. Yeah, I'm setting. Oh, good, 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 good. What's your favorite tasting note of the fly? Um, as much as I hate dream sequences mm. because it's just a cheap way to write the way that they take something that I am 100% diametrically opposed to and find a cool way to do this is probably my favorite moment. Gina Davis is great in that. She looks like she's an absolute hell bearing that larva. Mm-hmm. And the way that that thing comes out white and phallic and bloody and that was in her is so gruesome and mm-hmm. grotesque. That's my favorite moment in this film. Mine's that moment I played when his little monologue about being, I was an insect who dreamed he was a human, but now the dream's over and I am awake. Is like it's That's almost borderline chilling. Showcases his acting chops for sure. Absolutely. and But then it like it gets down to just the, the real horror that this character is in and, and that Gina Davis is in too. It's, 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 it's a good, it's, you wouldn't find that in a, in a genre movie like this. Well, he's celebrating this newfound power and it's about to betray him in about six minutes. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good stuff. Yeah. I mean, take your pick, Matt. What's the, Oh my God! we have to drink more of the old Forester 1920 just to wash our eyes of what we just saw. I got to pick the arm wrestling bit. I mean, it is, I don't like compound fractures <laughs> in any form, No. whether that's sports or just <laughs> film. Uh, or in real life to Joe Theismann. Oh goodness gracious! Yeah, uh, that's the that's the one part I don't like about sports is at any given moment something gruesome could happen and it just like scars your eyes. Great choice. Yeah, I think that's the turning point. That's where the movie goes into the gruesome. 
You know what I love about that scene? Mm. When he finishes it this way, he walks out with his hand as this trophy of victory, kind of showcasing it as he rolls out the door. Ugh. It's the one reason I won't arm wrestle any human. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> I'm going to go with what the hell are all of those things in the medicine cabinet? We had a discussion. Oh is that his penis? <laughs> and it's almost worth rewinding just to look. I think it is. A toe, a penis, some nails, his ear. That he's keeping this collection as a remembrance of what he formerly was. Well, eventually when science gets wind of he did create this thing that is successful, it just went awry, that's going to kind of be a big deal. You know what I mean? Sure. His museum. I mean, they joke about it, but like in the scheme of the real world, we'd be crazy about something like that. <laughs> Is that your argument for or against continued stem cell research? Uh, Ooh, loaded question. Here. Loaded question. I know. Yeah. I think stem cells could have some benefit, but just don't <laughs> splice them with fly stem cells. All right. Who's the master distiller on the fly? Oh, boy. What if I, just to be that guy. Sure. Because the obvious two are Cronenberg and Goldblum, mm -hmm. right? What if I didn't do either one of those and said Gina Davis because she's such a capable foil to make Brundle lovable and likable? So I'm going to go with that. Good choice. I want to just appreciate Gina Davis, and it also is acknowledging how much I enjoyed sitting behind her at the screening of The Fly and watching her just, and she was so happy. That's awesome. So I'm going to go with Gina Davis, even though I know it should be. Cronenberg or Goldblum. Well, it shows that she was proud of this film to even show up to right. that film or to the opera. There's one thing to, I made that as a youngster and I don't want to acknowledge it. Sigourney Weaver's really good at this. Um, oh, Jamie, Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis. Curtis is really good at that in, in Halloween about recognizing where she came from. Good for Gina Davis yeah, to that's, recognize that's this. That's awesome. Yeah. It seems weird to not give Cronenberg Master Distiller in a cask based all around his name. Yeah. Did he get it last week, though? No, we gave it to Marilyn Chambers. What? The, the porn star? I, honorable mention to Chris Wayless for his yeah. great effects. I got to give it to Goldblum. It's one of the great horror science fiction performances I think we've ever seen. And I know that type of iteration has become parody in films like Jurassic Park and Independence Day and for mm -hmm. Ragnarok and like his whole career as after that. Yeah. But not here. This is what he was put on this earth to do was to play this character. And sure. it's it's amazing. I, he's even said if Cronenberg were ever attached to a fly redo or side goal, I would. And he asked me, I would do it. So that's great. That would be pretty cool. You don't think the apartments.com thing has got him too busy? Probably not. Or whatever jazz band he's got going this week. Which Shane Crown from our uh, Rise of Skywalker has seen him. And in fact, I got to give another little shout out to Shane. I went to visit him when he was in college. This is 2010. Mm -hmm. And he was living in a dorm. This is a Loyola Marymount University out there. He was studying, he's studying film. And in his bath bathroom, when I had to go take a pee and... <laughs> And when you closed the bathroom door, there was a picture of Jeff Goldblum as the fly that said, Jeff Goldblum is watching you poop. That's awesome. And it was just like, I was like, I was like, he gets it too. I mean, like, like I showed this movie to my friends and they had the same visceral reaction that we had to this thing. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. And I love Jeff Goldblum. I love, I honestly, I love when he shows up in every movie. When he was in Thor Ragnarok as uh, the Grandmaster, I, he's hilarious. It's shameful to admit that we've done a cask on David Cronenberg, and out of four chances, he didn't get any of Master Distiller. But I'm going to buy that off right now because that's why we did the cask on him is because he's really good at what he does. You deserve a cask, and we can't say that about everybody. Lifetime achievement, essentially, and Rice Smile. How are you going to rate and grade the fly? Oh, boy. Um, it's certainly between single barrel and top shelf. 
the writing is so fantastic in this movie. I think it it's it's wildly unique, and that's usually where I go with a film that is so unique and so first across the finish line or avant-garde in the genre that it's choosing to play. That usually is where I draw my single barrel, and that's clearly in play here. I think I'm going to go with Top Shelf, which is shocking because I was pretty certain this was going to be a call film for me before we began the show today Mm -hmm. or before we began the viewing this morning. Yeah. I'm going to go Top Shelf just because the writing in this is so superior to just about anything we've covered in the last, I don't know, 12 to 15 episodes. Sure. That's fair. Maybe it is. I don't know what those are, but it's been a while since I've talked about the writing, maybe since Ghostbusters that we've spent as much time talking about the writing as we have in this. Mm Mm-hmm. That's an art, and that's hard to do. So I'm shockingly, even to myself, giving this, I guess, a top shelf rating. Wow. I think it deserves it. I mean, listen to the hour and a half we spent talking about this movie. I think we've made the case for it to belong there. Mm-hmm. I'll go there. I'll go right there with you. It's like single barrel plus, but I'll, I'll give it the push. And this is a top shelf science fiction horror film. I mean, I try to think of it's hard to remake a movie that like has been done and pretty well liked when it came out. People like the Vincent price fly and people like the, the Howard Hawks thing, but to have the gall to like, Hey, we're going to do it again. And we got a cool in on a way to make it entirely different. Those, both of those films mm-hmm. are not the same as their, uh, contempt or their, um, precursors. And, uh, I think honestly, those are the only two examples I can think of just right now. Uh, that have done that, that are so different and they're actually better than their precursors. Uh, well said. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to kind of think of like another movie that could actually use that treatment, like a, a film of that bygone era that could just not like a remake, but just like a reimagining. I have an idea for the nightcap. Okay. Let's get right to it and let's get to that nightcap. <laughs> I can't wait till we do the Lord of the Rings trilogy cast because we're going to be all about Howard Shore because his themes in that trilogy are borderline genius. He mm-hmm. trumps anything that I honestly think uh, John Williams has done post like E.T. Oh, wow. What a statement. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best film scores trilogies of all time. It's it's amazing. What's that uh, film podcast that focuses on score? Um, oh, shit. Uh, the soundtrack show. Has he done Shore? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's done. Wow. Lord, I think he's done Lord of the Rings, but not like sure. But like even like because you look at Silence of the Lambs and even The Fly, mm-hmm. there's some good stuff in there. Might be worth listening. Hit us with the nightcap, Matt. This is you get to take a David Cronenberg project built out of a failed pre-directed project. So any movie that sucked upon its initial directorial <laughs> efforts. And allow yourself, David Cronenberg, to be in the director's chair redoing that film. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of choices here. And we're not going to let ourselves go with the Star Chamber. 
<laughs> right. Matt, you're going to absolutely love my choice. And I'm sure I am. You're going to love mine too. It's actually, it's actually a film we've done on this podcast. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Okay. I got to go with 2000's Hollow Man. Oh, good. So for everything that film is a disaster in, and it's mostly just like the story, put Cronenberg instead of Paul Verhoeven, who we also love. Uh, <laughs> He's but come up again. For, for a film that's all about the disappearing of your visage and your body and put that in the hands of Cronenberg when he's so good at manipulating what the body is and how it reacts to the environment around it could be amazing. And honestly, I want to tool back those CGI effects that are incredibly dated in that film. And man, bring some practical love to the Invisible Man story, but done the way of David Cronenberg, I think could be amazing. The only caveat is he has to keep that peeping uh, motherfucker line. (laughs) That has to stay, but everything else can change. I think we get a much different Hollow Man. And honestly, if he made that film at that time, he might see a bit of a rebump in his career where he doesn't do a film like History of Violence. That's a great choice. Mm -hmm especially with the new technology and the way you could play with body. Yeah. I love it. I have to tell you how I came to this answer. Okay. (laughs) I told you that it was a big film week for the Dixon household this week and that I burned through specifically American Mary, which we talked about last week, which Mm -hmm. was a wild disappointment Mm -hmm. and a couple other ones in that viewing was, I have to admit the first time you gave me your copy of sisters, Mm -hmm. I burned through pretty quick because I, I I don't know what happened. So I sat down and made myself all in fully do it again this week. And there's good and bad to that, which got me thinking about Margot Kidder. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you sisters. Margot Kidder led me down the path in my mind to Superman two, And specifically a character Ursa played by Sarah Douglas. Mm. Okay. So we're not there yet. Oh my God. <laughs> this is a rabbit hole. <laughs> Jesus. I got to thinking about everything that Superman 2 is, and that would be a really fun show to do and how that film came to be. And well, there's two versions of that movie. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be that'd be a great one to do. Mm-hmm. I got thinking about Ursa and that character is Sarah Douglas yeah. and how remarkable looking she was and how is was that 82-ish? 81? So eight-year-old me. Hey, do you remember when she gets the manhole cover and goes, Superman, Mm -hmm. (laughs) throws it like a frisbee? (laughs) Yeah. I kind of had a thing for her. Yeah. Sarah Douglas is remarkably striking in her appearance. Mm -hmm. So then it came to me. Okay. I know the answer for the question that I gave you on like Wednesday. Okay. And it's another Sarah Douglas feature. This is crazy. Okay. That this makes it on the podcast today is wild. It's Conan the Destroyer. Ooh. Let me tell you why this started to really make sense to me. If you take Arnold and all his muscles, which is body freakishness, Wilt Chamberlain, which is height and body freakishness, and ready for this, Grace Jones Mm -hmm. and all of her body freakishness, and a movie that is, and Sarah Douglas, who is beautifully evil in the way she's portrayed and gorgeous in the fact that she does it. I think Sarah Douglas is a remarkable looking creature. Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't it right around a shitty film that is based on body freakishness in a freaks kind of way in an action movie that was terrible? And it could have been a way for Cronenberg to break into like the mainstream too. Don't you want to see David Cronenberg take a crack at sword sandals and monsters with freakish specimens at his disposal and their powers? Absolutely. Conan the Destroyer. Because Conan the Barbarian is 
great. Like, that's like a fun sword and sandals movie, but Conan the Destroyer is like a total train wreck in my regard. Like, giant snakes and swords and horns of whatever the hell it is to keep society from falling into complete darkness. Conan the Destroyer at the budget and power of David Cronenberg, not in a Canadian way, but an American studio system, which is we have a whole lot of money, go spend it. That movie could have, because that concept is pretty cool for the sword and sandals mm-hmm. warrior thing. Yeah. Grace Slick just alone. I'm sorry, Grace Jones. Grace Grace Slick's an interesting <laughs> oh character too from Jefferson Airplane, but oh Grace Grace oh Jones alone <laughs> is such an interesting person to look at. Yeah. Add Sarah Douglas, Arnold, and Wilt Chamberlain. I, that's my answer. That's crazy. Conan the Destroyer. What's crazy is how you got to that. <laughs> I know. I, str- I gave you that question. I struggled with it and struggled with it. And there were a million choices. But yeah, I had to pick a film that felt like like a Cronenberg movie, but it was also, I didn't like it. You know what I mean? So that's how it came to Hollow Man, because it, it seemed like his niche. And we just trashed that movie. <laughs> That Paul Verhoeven guy finds a way to keep showing up. He got he made it in twice today because you brought up Total Recall earlier. I did. Paul Verhoeven is such an uncanny presence on Rice Smile Films. It's and he, shocking. He has at least two more films worth talking about on this show. So let's just do Basic Instinct again. Yeah, let's just. Oh man, that was a long time ago. That yeah, was. Oh uh, Matt, this has been a lot of fun to talk about David Cronenberg's The Fly from 1986. Indeed. Um, <clears throat> check it out. I'm sure a lot of people have seen this, but if you haven't, go watch this movie. Yeah, you have to. Don't eat before or don't eat during. Um, <laughs> or eat soft food as you are. Yeah, pour the, this because this, will, <laughs> this would melt it down. This would kill everything. Yeah, no shit. But uh, coming up next week, so we didn't intentionally call this the David Cronenberg cast for a reason because unbeknownst to myself, I did not know he had a son that was also a filmmaker and kind of dabbling in this same world. And he actually had a film come out in October 2020 that was well-received, well-regarded, and it's going to be our capper to this cask. We're talking about Brandon Cronenberg's film, Possessor. Have you done it yet? I've done it. I don't know how I feel about it, so I need to go back into the flesh plasma pool with you so we can figure out what this is. It's a really great high-concept idea, which I know is going to speak to you on Mm -hmm. a storytelling level. And we'll kind of have to see how he differs from Dad in the presentation of the body horror, but it was entirely violent in my first viewing. So, so a wry, raw watch next week. Exactly. Yeah. So this, this fun will, when we do that, and a new film too. So it's a, a chance to talk about a 2020 release that we did not get to see. So th- this will be fun, and we'll kind of get to see. Um, Can you tell me with no uncertainty that it is better than Mank? Oh, it's better than Mank. It's more coherent than Mank. Hallelujah. <laughs> So you have that coming to you. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hit us up on, again, Facebook or Instagram. That's where we do all our postings or at risesmileproductions at gmail.com if you want to write a lengthy Jeff Goldblum-like soliloquy to us. We will read it back on the next episode. And give us a rating or review on any of your podcast sites. That's how a lot of people find the show is just how it gets bumped up in the barometer of podcast rankings whatever the hell that is we've teased this out a couple times i'm gonna do it a little bit here again we have something really big coming in about two weeks but we're gonna announce it next week 
something big, big, big. Yeah, big, big, big. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers, I got to get going. I have a telepod in, uh, telepod in the other room. I'm going to get in it. I hope there's not a fly or I hope Ripley's not in there. That's my dog because I still want to be myself and I still want Ripley to be Ripley. Can I ask you to give me an hour before you do that and I'll tell you why? <laughs> okay. I need to set off the raid indoor fogger just to keep you in the state that you are now. You got to gas me out. I do. Excellent. Uh, cheers, everyone, and we'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. And if you want to leave us some more comments or some feedback, hit us up on any of our social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. The Fly is property of 20th Century Fox, Brooks Films, and SLM Production Group, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Don't do that, it hurts. Sorry, hon. I didn't know you had the skin of a princess. You're real sensitive, huh? Okay, okay, that's it. You're going to like it. I don't want to! I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid.